0: Didn't suck a punch frog, they've got enough difficulties as it is.
1: Man, imagine a arboreal Sicilian, that'd be a thing to see, wouldn't it? Okay, welcome back. This is episode 61 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co hosting, as always, is Tom Major, and this week we're discussing. Hmm, what's what's the best way to summarise this? Vertical stratification? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. We're talking about animals which exist at different
0: heights above the ground, and why that might be. Why don't they all just... Or underground. Or even underground, yeah. Yeah. Either... Well, you've got to think of, like, the entire Earth. The highest point is the top of a tree or mountain, and the lowest point is as low as the frog can dig. Yes. And we're looking at why they might be split across these boundaries and whether or not different regions of the world have different amounts of vertical space sharing among the species that live there.
1: Right, exactly, because the world's not homogenous. It's not just one big flat mess. It's, it's, it's got areas of forest, it's got areas of desert, it's got areas of whatever, and different landscapes or habitats provide different opportunities for vertical stratification so how do these patterns sort of match up across the world what sort of global things can we pull out and how do they maybe impact what species are there or how many species are there and then we don't we
0: stop being global and we go local as we want to do local yeah and we talk about snakes specifically a couple of species which seem to have found a nice way to share the forest amicably In perpetuity, as far as they're concerned. Or at least their violence is hidden. Yes, yes.
1: So, yeah, I think... um, Paper one? Yeah, let's do it, let's do it. Okay, first one is by Oliviera and Sheffers, published in 2019 in Ecography. Vertical stratification influences global patterns of biodiversity. So, to me, that is a classic ecography title. Well, you have yeah. no idea of the study species or animals you're working with. It's very broad and sort of uh, kind of grandiose.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a tease. Classic as well, ecography. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It could easily have more, but it doesn't. It leaves you wondering. But how? How does vertical stratification influence the global patterns of biodiversity? Tell or us. Or why? Or why? Yeah, and also I think it's actually. I think actually vertical stratification influencing global patterns of biodiversity. You could argue that actually, to some extent, global patterns of biodiversity influence vertical stratification.
1: <laughs> it's a whole chicken and an egg thing, right? Yeah, it's a bit confusing. Why is vertical stratification occurring? <laughs> could it be because there's more species? there? we've been going or... for less than
0: two minutes, and already the the phrase vertical stratification has lost any
1: meaning. It's great. I say we. I I think we double down on it. Okay. You've just been... Yeah, okay. I'm going to be saying it a lot. Um, Stratification is quite a nice word to say. So, it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it's quite a nice word to type as well. Sort of like that little flare, at the ION at the mm, end.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Agreed.
0: <laughs> so the basic sort of theme idea, at least the way that I began to sort of get my head around this, was essentially if there's a place in the world with more vegetation, there's likely to be more niches and more niches equals more species
1: Mm. species
0: love niches they do and basically the the theory that they present in the introduction is that if there's increased vegetation structure so more complex layers of vegetation picture a nice dense rainforest then that will increase the amount of vertical stratification that is possible and therefore we would expect to see The highest levels of arboreal animals in the tropics, because in the tropics, habitat heterogeneity, this variety of habitats is highest when you're at the equator and it's lowest as you head towards the poles. Mm. And there's advantages to being a vertical vertical creature. I mean, I'm sure you at some point in your life have conferred the advantages of verticality, but it means you can use many more different microhabitats and... If you were to think about it in terms of a nice rainforest, the climate gradient within just 20 to 30 meters of arboreal rainforest can be as much as four degrees and 10% relative humidity, which is actually the equivalent to going over 400 miles, 400 miles, 400
1: miles. 400
0: miles, no, 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 400 meters, right? (laughs) Yeah, which is that, yeah, it's equivalent to 400 meters in altitude or hundreds of kilometers in latitude. Um so it is actually it could potentially be a long way. Um, Basically yeah,
1: arboreality is the lazy animals way of dealing with uncomfortable climates. Precisely. If you want get to go to humid, climb a tree.
0: Yeah. If you want to get hotter or colder, yeah, you can do that. Yeah. If you want to mm. get warmer, go up to the canopy and sit in the sun. And if you want to get cooler, go down and bury yourself in the nice leaf litter and you'll find it pretty chill.
1: And the there's a sort of counter of that is if you don't have trees and you don't have vegetation, you don't have that sort of setup, then you're liable to be exposed to more uh, sort of climate instability makes a bigger difference. If you're exposed in the middle of a desert and suddenly it gets really hot, you've got very limited options on how to deal with that.
0: Hmm.
1: One option does spring to mind, though, which they
0: mentioned mm. in there. Leave. Which is... Leave? Yep, yeah, just leave. Obviously, <laughs> if you're a frog in the desert... You can very simply emigrate. Um, it's not hard to do. No, of course it is hard to do. What they usually tend to do is actually burrow. So you'll see lots of these. You know, it's like these explosive breeder frogs we've talked about on the podcast before. Uh, you know, those
1: purple frogs. Where they? I mean, just... you start. Yeah, I, I just want before you start going in and talking about your weird purple frogs. <laughs> the studies on frogs. <laughs> we didn't mention that. It wasn't in the title. No, the study is on
0: frogs. Yeah, no, that was, yeah, that was a pleasant surprise because you pointed this one out. And then, yeah, it's about frogs. It's solely about frogs. And they reckon that frogs were a good study species for this because the thing about frogs is if you put a frog near a tree for evolutionarily significant periods of time, it will evolve to exploit that tree. And <laughs> sure enough... Just,
1: just put it down. Let yeah. it do its frog
0: thing. Yeah, pretty sure that's how it works. And then, um, yeah, basically frogs will go, you know, they're not just terrestrial, though many of them are. They're also willing to be arboreal. And then on the flip side of that, you've also got, like we just said, many, many burrowing frogs. So frogs will basically inhabit the whole gamut from fossorial all the way up to, you know, strictly arboreal. So they kind of present a really good study species for this. They're willing to inhabit all sort of regions but it's not and just it's, is it just no frogs? it's not just frogs it's no, it's no, no 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 in so, general, th- there is it? a
1: sub sub bit of analysis they do with just frogs but they do use all they use uh 4567 species of amphibians mm. which is around 56% of all amphibian species that's pretty damn good going according to, to amphibian that the, web, website
0: yeah and i mean they were limited by which species they actually had good data on how they behaved some of them they didn't um, yeah.
1: Well, it's a mix between behave data and range data. So, where they're actually existing, distribution data, more accurately. That's right. Um, part of me wondered when I was reading that is okay, you. I'm willing to bet that the existence of distribution data on all global amphibians is not random. I'm willing to bet that if you are a frog that lives in North America or Europe, you're more likely to have good distribution data than a frog living in you know South Asia or something like that yeah so I sort of wondered whether there would be something going on there with just how the data is curated but with 56% of species covered you can be like "Mm, that's quite a that's quite a lot it's probably smoothed out to some extent and they do um somewhere somewhere in the in the methods sort of mitigate uh, by looking at these patterns within a, within a like biome level, so not just global, but within set biomes, to try and counter that, and you would expect biomes to have relatively similar sampling effort, just by virtue of rainforests are hard to survey in. So that's probably the defining aspect of why rainforests have been surveyed or not. Mm, yeah, other than you know obviously wealth and access and things like that have other implications, but. You can only do so much.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, and they obviously did try and account for that. Um, I thought it was quite interesting where they got their data, this big database called Amphibio, which I hadn't heard Mm. of before, which is, well, it's just a downloadable Excel spreadsheet, basically, with tons of information on amphibian traits gathered from all over the place. Ah, oh, wow. So actually, uh, Oliveira, who is the lead author of the paper we're discussing, is also the lead author of this amphibio thing.
1: Well, that's pretty awesome, then it yeah. actually says in the paper it says it right there i just realized ah Oliviera et al 2017 it's pretty cool and um yeah it's just this big
0: database of amphibian traits and frog they facts. looked yeah it's just frog facts and they gathered these facts from books websites dissertations journal publications everywhere and i was curious about this database um so i downloaded it and i looked up one of our favourite amphibians, just to see what I could find out about it. As an example, I thought I'd look up the northern slimy salamander. Oh, aka, excellent choice. Yeah, plethodon glutinosis. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, this gunk lord, what I could find out was it's terrestrial and aquatic, but not arboreal, which obviously is relevant to the paper we we're discussing. It has a body mass of 65 grams. It's 206 millimetres <laughs> long. Care to guess how old they mature at, Ben? Oh, uh, Eight months. No, 2.5 years. Whoa. And just 48 millimetres long, they can be sexually mature.
1: Hmm. How long do you think That's they long live? Long. Um, I reckon they live eight years. They can live 20 years. What? Yep. And My they can produce gosh. 34
0: young per year, and they will only breed once in a year. And their offspring are direct developing... So they don't have a larval form, and they hatch out of their little salamander eggs at a mere four to five millimetres long. So there you go. Yeah. So that's... If you were to download this database, it's got facts like this for, well, I mean, thousands of amphibians. It's an awesome resource. Um, And it's quite new. It only came out... What? The paper came out in 2017?
1: 2017,
0: yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if you're looking at... If you're interested in amphibians, it's worth a download anyway. You can at least... I mean, it's definitely uh, material for a good amphibian-based quiz with some Damn. sort of quite That's one That's a missed opportunity right there. Yeah, well, I mean, I just did you a mini quiz.
1: Yeah, I guess. I didn't do very well, though. Mm.
0: It's hard to guess how long an amphibian lives, though, isn't it?
1: Uh, I suppose. I suppose. Don't beat but yourself hey. up.
0: That's all I'm saying. Anyway,
1: they got all this information. All these, all this trait information. So they had whether the species were fossorial, semi-fossorial, terrestrial, semi-arboreal, or arboreal, right? Yes. And then they also had all this sort of distribution data from all these different species. So essentially, what they could do was map out where all amphibians are, the sort of like species count across all all the globe, split up into sort of sections. Yeah, you, know, you do like a like a grid by grid. How many species are in this grid? How many species are in this grid? How many species are in this grid? Right? Yeah. And then they could work out the sort of percentage or proportion of those species that were fossorial, terrestrial, or arboreal. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly,
0: and it's cool because then you can see based on all different kinds of things what is leading to the actual variation in vertical space use it's all very well knowing that there's places with arboreal arboreal frogs but it's what they wanted to know was how many arboreal frogs there are relative to other places so is there a certain ecotype
1: which is more likely to contain lots of burrowing frogs and yeah exactly like what what sort of drivers what sort of drivers could there be pushing towards arboreality or fossorial behavior Mm. Uh, what did they actually pick out they picked out uh, seasonal temperature range Diurnal temperature range, uh, mean precipitation over the year. Then they had this vegetation structure thing, which you've talked about, um, which was basically a combination of tree canopy height and tree density. So trying to basically create a metric which summarises a forest or or vegetation in general into a nice single number. And that was quite cool because that's a whole bunch of satellite imagery globally calibrated against locally taken um, measures of tree density and and canopy height and stuff so it's one of those like combined data sets which sort of blow my mind how they managed to match up on ground readings with satellite data really crazy impressive and what's the final oh topography so elevation that's pretty simple and one more that i thought was really interesting this climate change velocity oh yeah that was cool Yeah so it's essentially just a proxy for how sensitive an area of the world is to climatic shifts and that's based on how much the climate's moved from a late quaternary sort of period till now. This idea of some areas are more uh, sensitive to shifts in climate some areas are not and that is a nice proxy when I talked about okay if you leave a frog in a in a climatically unstable area it's going to have to try and deal with that that's the metric to get a handle on where those places are mm. yeah so the places with the highest
0: proportion of arboreal amphibians also did end up quite closely responding corresponding with areas of high species richness so more species tends to mean or tends to coincide with more arboreal species and these were places which were equatorial so particularly on their little heat map of arboreal amphibians west africa and the western portion of south america were glowing very brightly which is you know to be expected really given what we were talking about earlier on where habitat structure or vegetation structure tends to correlate with more arboreal species sure enough these sort of like densely Nice, lush, forested places tended to have more arboreal amphibians, and
1: yeah. What, what would you say that sort of latitude is zero to fifteen degrees, perhaps? Is yeah. where your peak peak uh, species richness is. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, it's sort of just above the equator, isn't it? Just below. Sorry, that's, <laughs> that's all right. Yeah, <laughs> Good de- ne- Negative fifteen. They, they they have it as um, as uh, degrees south. Um, but yeah,
0: so close to the equator as we were kind of expecting but what was also interesting was um, fossoriality was much more common at both lower and higher latitudes so places as you get further away from the equator places like Australia and North America where there are deserts, there was lots of fossorial Mm. species but also the Indian subcontinent which is dry for a lot of the year and yeah, concordantly has a lot of frogs which elect to go underground to get away from the baking
1: baking heat yeah, there was actually a huge spike in uh, like fossorial species at 30 degrees south, like by huge amounts. It's just a just a digging frog hotspot.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think mm. that's. I mean, that's obviously equally to do with the climate, but also it's more so than um, at a similar degrees of higher latitudes, just because you've got those big land masses of um, right. Africa and. Australia, which are largely quite dry.
1: That was something I was surprised they didn't sort of control for. It's like a like a species richness per available landmass sort of thing. Because you're naturally going to get fewer species in areas with smaller landmass. I mean, it almost feels like the reason you don't have that same huge spike at equivalent degrees north for fossorial species is because is right slap bang over the middle of it is the Sahara Desert. Which is yeah. so far in the extreme that you're not going to get those species. So it's not like that's almost so unsuitable that it's deflating the number of fossorial um, species in that zone. Mm. Even though the pattern is probably relatively similar in both north and south. Yeah, I don't. It's, it's very tough to do this. This world is all heterogeneous and not uh, a smooth, perfect gradient. <laughs> no, bring back Pangea. Much simpler then. (laughs) Get all these oceans out of the way. Yeah, it's a mess. I Um, mean it would that to be fair, that would actually simplify it, having this big, big single land mass in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, I don't think that's gonna be an option. (laughs) (laughs) Bring back my Pangea. (laughs)
0: Um Yeah, so the most divergent modes of verticality which is a fun phrase, but basically the two most extreme things you can have are either fossorial or arboreal, and they're favoured in different environments. That's the crux of it, isn't it? In general,
1: yeah, fossorial mi- almost, animals... Yeah, almost mirror images of each other, where yeah. one goes down, the other increases. Yeah, so fossoriality, and also being terrestrial,
0: just living on the ground, so living on or below the ground, is favoured in the subtropics and closer towards the poles, respectively, so Basically, in the subtropics, you get fossorial and terrestrial animals prefer higher latitudes. Um, I mean, you think about it, our native amphibians in the UK are pretty much all terrestrial, aren't they? We don't have any... We used to have um, the European tree frog, but not anymore. That would have been an exception. But yeah, the others are all terrestrial. Um, Whereas in the tropics, you're more likely to get arboreal animals. So when there are more species, there are also more arboreal species and the reason for that they think is that the tropics has consistent weather year round so there's no need to go and hide underground for part of the year because the weather's extreme there's tons of vegetation of lots of different structures providing all these delicious niches for the frogs to inhabit and there's loads of rain so they're never going to dry out being amphibians they you know rain they're a big fan of and Although some other sort of, um, they call them palearctic and nearctic environments, so much higher or lower latitudes, also have lots of rain and high vegetation structure, they suffer from either extreme cold or extreme dry for large parts of the year, which means mm. that species are less likely to live in trees because, well, part of the year they'll just get destroyed by the weather.
1: Yeah, it drives that fossoriality out of necessity, basically. There's the, you hit those extremes and suddenly it's a big deal um that raises an
0: interesting question with regards to climate change because if the climate in many tropical places is set to get hotter and drier as the climate changes they suggest there could be this likelihood that many species will either descend from the trees or die out and therefore the vertical distribution of frogs might actually end up being flattened because these frogs living in really lush you know tropical areas if that climate no longer remains consistent year-round or if it gets hotter they won't have anywhere to live and there is actually a precedent for this there was a although kind of in the opposite sense there was a Sheffers et al paper which showed that at higher elevations frog species which generally live uh, lower down in the canopy of the forest were more inclined to be arboreal because it was warmer higher up in the trees so if that's the case you can imagine that as the climate gets hotter they'll feel the need to try and descend to avoid this heat but of course they can only descend as far as the ground Um, so the likelihood is these communities may end up coming groundward as it gets hotter and of course that presents the risk that eventually it's going to get too hot Um, and it kind of reminded me of creatures living on sky islands as the Mm. climate warms they try and maintain that thermal optimum by moving up the mountains Eventually, they're just going to have to... Well, they run out of a mountain. They run out of a mountain. They can't actually adapt anymore. So you could kind of see a similar thing happening where eventually frogs descending from treetops towards the cooler ground. Eventually, the ground's co- not cool enough. They're either going to have to become fossorial or they're just going to die out. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And one is this added complexity that you are descending into a niche that's probably already occupied in these areas. The whole reason why species richness is so high in arboreal areas is the, well, no, there's two two possible reasons for it, or at least two possible that they describe. One is niche packing, where higher complexity of the arboreal habitat, so place, you know, they've got epiphytes and vines and leaves and huge trees whatever they've got places for frogs to live allows more overlap or more specialization for species so that's where you're basically packing more species into the same space by a greater diversity of resources the other they were suggesting is niche expansion where you just physically have more newer niches because you've got essentially more space you've got this three-dimensional space to make use of you're not all just stuck on the ground. You start Mm. stripping that out as the climate dries and things, you're going to be forcing all these species to use more uh, similar or restricted resources and essentially push up competition by by all chances. So you've got this – nothing's operating in isolation because there's already species that are going to be there and perhaps they're not going to be pushed out in the same way because, I don't know, fossorial or terrestrial behaviour is less sensitive – to drying or lack of precipitation or whatever climatic shift that's undergoing
0: Mm. you know sometimes when you're reading a paper like this i don't know if you get this but you get this kind of like overwhelming sort of notion of biogeographical processes changing over time and you suddenly have this sort of like almost like an epiphany (laughs) as to the the fact that forests as we know them today have been changing non-stop right so they've been becoming more and less hospitable in waves throughout you know, yeah. ecological time yeah, yeah, yeah. and the thing that we're looking at right now is like oh yeah sweet forests are great for frogs but the reality is those forests are transitory in the na- you know by not I'm not really commenting now on our impact on the climate which is like undeniable but just the fact that throughout history places we look at the forest have been waxing and waning in their hospi- hospitable nature for frogs so you've had like, you know, even when you go to the Amazon, there's been a point in geological time where that's been perhaps a desert and there's only been for soil frogs. And then those frogs have had the opportunity as the climate changes to come out, radiate into all these different niches. And the reality is that some point in the future the opposite is gonna happen. Yeah. And they're all gonna to have to try and go underground again. I just love thinking of it. I just love thinking of that kind of continuum
1: the sort of flux of of up trees down trees for you've got that vertical flux but you also have the more traditionally studied um, latitudinal flux or, or as you were mentioning the altitudinal flux up and down mountains yeah. so you've got you know easy free different options for species adapting to climate shifts and things but they have to keep pace with them
0: mm.
1: and and yeah. for the longest time some do some don't you know that's that species turnover right there Yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating uh, system that's ongoing right now, always has been, probably, hopefully, will be for a very long time still. Mm. Yeah. And it's produced all these wonderful frogs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: no, I think this is a cool paper. Definitely a good one, you know, getting you to think about... Yeah, just some some why's as to fundamentals, which you just kind of take for granted that there's more animals in forests. But it's nice to actually have some kind of empirical evidence as to why.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's sort of cut through a lot of noise and pointed pointed at some things that are very logically connected to the uh, vertical stratification of species or the arboreality of species with the temperature variation and uh, climate change. Uh, instability and things like that so it's 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 given some nice um explanatory aspects too i think that's Mm. that's yeah a real uh, just nice point you know nice nice (laughs) finding (laughs) i I I call it an
0: epiphany which is a little bit grandiose and daft but yeah no it's just it gets gets you thinking about things on a bigger scale which is um can be quite exciting
1: so it does it's it's impressive that they managed to pull out reasonable patterns from global data that is, like I sort of insinuated at the beginning, not particularly... Con- uh, what's the, um, you know any, any data people collect is, is biased in the way that people tend to look at the world or resources are distributed. And they've still managed to pull this stuff out with a dataset which is definitely not perfect. A long mm. way from perfect, yeah. And it's impressive that these very logical patterns are still detectable there. Like you can always, you know, you can always force a sort of pattern detection, but often they don't make too much sense if you're pushing it that far. But mm. these ones fit into that sort of theoretical framework very nicely, even though there are limitations to the data. I mean, they even d- they double checked also that salamanders and Sicilians weren't overly impacting. These estimations, because they're essentially never uh, arboreal. No. You know, there's yeah. maybe a few salamander species that are semi-arboreal, arboreal, but really, uh, I don't think. Man, imagine an arboreal Sicilian. That I'm a trying to see to now. It. Yeah, I just. I mean, what it would a, have to be such a moist place. A big Sicilian too. I would
0: love to see that though, like a boa constrictor-sized It'd Sicilian be-
1: <laughs> <laughs> going through the trees. Oh, yeah. incredible! So Slip. find them, out. them by the yeah, find
0: them by the slime trail.
1: Yeah, be amazing. But that, but the point is, they did this analysis with and without Sicilians and salamanders included, just to test how sensitive it was, how much impact Sicilians and uh, you know almost purely fossorial species were having. Yeah, and the pattern still held up, which is a very good sign that something quite solid's happening here. It's not just. A weird artifact of frog diversity in the tropics or something it seems to be holding through even within biomes. And uh, if you're a new listener to the podcast, we're not being insensitive about people from
0: Sicily. they are legis amphibians. <laughs> <sighs> yeah shall we go on to a very specific example about some snakes that we both love?
1: Yeah, so we've got this this example of climate and latitude and sort of big grandiose... Global patterns driving vertical stratification, but it can actually also be more personal.
0: It can. It can be delightfully personal, and this is a paper by Barnes, Farron, Strine, Hill III, Wenxerthorne, and Sue in 2019 are the habitat niches of female green pit vipers, cryptelotrops, macrops and vridovopera voguli, partitioned by vertical stratification and this has been in the herpetological bulletin yeah so um, I mean this is a paper about green pit vipers which um, I mean this study took place in Saccharat biosphere reserve which is where you live and it's where I lived for a time Um, and yeah I had the good fortune of actually working uh, with Kurt, who is a lead author on this paper, on these snakes and radio tracking them. I've talked about it in the past. But yeah, I mean, they're just awesome little snakes. And there's two species here of green pit vipers. Two of the three which are actually present in the area. Um, you've got the Vogels pit viper and the big-eyed pit viper. And what was going on in this paper was using radio telemetry, the team were looking at whether or not the two species had partitioned the habitat based on how high they're existing within that habitat and this is a evergreen dry evergreen forest in
1: thailand um yeah and i mean the, the the point is if you're a species you don't want to be in direct competition with another species which shares a very similar niche to you that makes everybody's lives harder you'd rather have your own niche that you can exploit in your own time with your own little specialization Pit vipers, green pit vipers specifically, they're all quite morphologically similar, in the sort of broad sense. So instead of changing what you uh, sort of look like, changing your morphology, an alternative is to change where you are or slightly modify your niche, and that's mm. what this is looking at. Whether yeah. that is a possibility here, and as it turns out, it is, or so it would seem. I, I would say heavily, heavily suggested. It's
0: heavily suggested, yeah. I think the authors themselves say it's heavily suggested. They sort of say, it, because there was quite a small sample size, there was only a few of each species um, being radio tracked. But from what they saw, the big-eyed pit vipers, aka teletrops macrops, seemed to be hanging around in lower areas of the trees or close to the ground than the Vogels pit vipers, which is kind of a Traditionally held belief among researchers at the station, anyway. I remember people talking about this when I was there that you generally yeah. sp- see Vogels higher up and Macrops and then um, but, the White Lips a bit lower down.
1: Yeah, the kicker is, or, the, or certainly the, the bit that makes it hard to pick apart just by wandering out into the forest and looking, is that uh, Vogels are tending to prefer more pristine primary forest, whereas Macrops are pretty easy going when we'll yeah. deal with human habitation. And just by virtue of humans being in a place, we tend to simplify the vegetation structure. So if a uh, species is tolerant of human disturbance, they're only going to have fewer vegetation structure sort of options. Mm-hmm. So you've got to yeah. sort of consider that with a macrop situation, that they are a bit more flexible, most likely, whereas Vogel's certainly here don't seem to be. Yeah. Um, I mean... um
0: Yeah certainly that was reflected in at least my witnessing of snakes while I was there because in the whole six months I was there, I only saw one Vogel's pit viper and that was really high up in a tree. Like I think it must've been 20 meters up. We sent Jamie up there. <laughs> <laughs> it was a heroic effort to catch that snake. Uh, the man is like, um, he's like, he's a different species, but um Yeah. That was the only time we saw Vogels and it was super high up there. Whereas Macrops, I mean, you're tripping over those things all the goddamn time. They're everywhere. You know, uni high, chest height. And it's
1: height. backed up by, by bite records, most likely too. Where Macrops uh-huh. are one of the higher frequencies of reported bites in Thailand. Uh, Vogels, I doubt there's very many at all. I don't remember mm-hmm. them even being on a list, to be honest. But then they might be just lumped in Green Pit Viper. Mm-hmm. Certainly Macrops being in being in human areas being low to the ground they're perfect for just getting kicked in the face or brushed up against with a knee or something like that or yeah uh, in leaf litters not leaf litter in like cut vegetation things like that where people are going to be actively moving around and using and and modifying the landscape where hands are going to be close to snakes
0: yeah and that is despite them being pretty laid back everyone makes mistakes Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, these two snakes, I would highly suggest that if you can't put an image of a big-eyed pit viper in your head, you Google one now and just sort of take a second to appreciate what is a fantastic-looking creature. They are really beautiful with these. They're called big-eyed pit vipers because they've got gigantic eyes. And human beings, you know, we're naturally drawn to things with gigantic eyes because that's what babies look like. So,
1: Well, as long as their eyes aren't too big.
0: No, because, yeah, I mean,
1: yeah, once you get to the sort of... Like, tarsier size, you're being like, ooh... Ah.
0: Yeah. Gross. Oh, steady. Or, or like those um, horrible, what are they called? Those massive squids. Those massive squids. Yeah. You know the ones. You know the ones. Big squids. Yeah. Scary. Not. Mm. Yeah. I mean, they've got big bodies, but they're big eyes. Yeah. It's too
1: <laughs> difficult to contextualize. Um, well, and they're independently evolved weird eyes. So we're naturally going to feel a little bit uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, once you find that out Yeah, not good Um, But similarly, um, Vogel's pit vipers and I mean, another really, really beautiful snake So have a Google I mean, they're broadly just green And because they're pit vipers They've got the really distinct arrow-shaped heads But yeah, definitely worth a look And, um, yeah As it turns out, the Vogels that they were tracking They were tracking female snakes only In the cooler period of the year
1: in Thailand And, um Yeah, Vogels. Which is worth bringing up for one reason, and that's that there is a suggestion that female and male green pits of macrops are likely using different niches anyway. Yeah. So there's multiple layers of niche separation, most likely. There's a suggestion that uh, you've got this uh, interspecies between macrops and Vogels, then you've got this within species for macrops that's. Perhaps suggested that there's a dietary uh separation between males and females with head morphology there. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. And I think we talked about that paper on the podcast before, haven't we? At least I it's definitely come up before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But um if you're interested in that, there's a Stry how paper, isn't there, about the macrops morphology and the likelihood of niche partitioning as a result of that, which is cool, like you say, because yeah, you know, this paper is looking at, in isolation, the fact that these two species are existing at different levels of the canopy with um, Vogels generally hanging out in the above story, uh, mid-story, and then you've got Macrops lower down, either on the ground story or on the ground, or even occasionally underground. So yeah, there is, like you say, this kind of complex interwoven Ability of these species to find different places to live and split up the habitat like that. So although you've got lots of heat seeking missile green pit vipers hanging around, they're all doing, you know, quite variable things depending on their species and their sex. Um, mm. So I actually um, I spoke to Will, who's one of the authors of this paper, to find out, you know, get the sort of backstage goss, if you will. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he told me that obviously this is a paper about the. The snake's partitioning habitat. He said initially it was called Civil Serpents. And, and in,
1: why why was that dropped? Well apparently the reviewers didn't like it. Yeah, but they can't make you change a title. Sounds like they exerted themselves in this case. Outrageous.
0: Because I think that's absolutely hilarious. Civil Serpents. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like it, I like Civil serpent It too. sounds like civil serpents. Which is well, funny yeah. because will is English and then the fact that they're being civil I mean I think they said that a lot of people wouldn't get the joke that doesn't matter it's not for them yeah exactly I feel the same way um you know I mean I guess the title is more descriptive now so that's good but Uh... there you go but yeah I mean habitat or niche partitioning seemingly of two different beautiful species of green snake
1: Um, yeah i i just want to call out how lazy these vipers are they hardly moved no they don't do a lot and i mean to be fair to them it was two months they moved 13 times on average
0: (laughs) (laughs) it was cold though it was the cool it was the cool season
1: yeah no that's that's true you know that's that's true but even so small moves average around 30 so that's like a you know, from one day to another, so they were tracked every day. Yeah. Um, Overall, an average of 0.27 metres per day. That's... So, like, 30 centimetres yeah. a day.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, there is a paper out on them moving around more of the year, which I helped to collect data for, and they they don't do anything, really.
1: Yeah, they tiny do the very home ranges. spare minimum. The bare minimum. Two hectares for Vogels and 0.6 hectares for Macrops. They're chilling.
0: I love that. <laughs> I rate them so highly for the, that. I think that's what's so cool about them. They just, they just expend the minimum energy possible.
1: Yeah, they're efficient. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like like why we love the the healer monsters. You've oh, got to yeah. respect that level of efficiency. Just let the frogs walk into your mouth.
0: That's it. Set up position on a tree. They're ambush predators, so you always see them either coiled up on the sort of nook of a a branch or curled around something and they'll be in an s position just staring 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 at a branch or a rock and uh if any small lizard or small frog has the misfortune to cross that beam of infrared sensitivity you can bet your bomb dollar it's going to be game over yeah yeah and uh yeah that's how they operate and i couldn't respect them more i think they're amazing animals <laughs> i love them very dearly and yeah. i always will yeah, yeah. So it's cool it's cool to see some um, papers coming out of kurt's work and actually documenting for everyone to see that these snakes are stone cold chillers Hmm.
1: and a lot more to do you know dietary stuff dietary overlap all sorts of things there's so much more to learn about these snakes this is just uh scratching the surface really
0: hmm yeah but yeah, it's a great example of vertical stratification, real life example, because before we were just talking about frogs in general. It's a bit nebulous, but now you can actually relate it directly to a snake, which is obviously cooler than a frog as well. So it's a double win. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, frogs. <laughs> Take that, frogs. You
1: shouldn't sucker punch frogs. They've got enough difficulties as it is. They do. They, they live tough lives, yeah. often predated on by snakes. Yeah. Brutal. Come a break, mm, give mm. frogs a chance, damn it! But yeah, so I think that sums up
0: vertical stratification of habitat in herpetofauna quite neatly, ne- nicely, neatly. Um, mm. Shall we move on to our hotly anticipated biweekly descriptive segment about a new species?
1: Yes, species of the bi-week <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs>
0: Okay, so this is by Santa Cruz, Von May, Catanazi, Witcher, Lopez de Heda, and Robosky in 2019, a new species of terrestrial breeding frog from the Upper Madre de Dios watershed, Amazon Andes, and lowlands of southern Peru, published in Diversity. Mmm, this year. Yeah. Diversity. Which is 2019. Diversity is such an optimistic name for a journal, isn't it? Diversity, like, it's just such a good yeah. word.
1: I remembered it being called Diversity and Distributions. That But maybe this is a slightly different one.
0: That's a different thing, I
1: think. Huh. Okay. I'd
0: like to publish in Diversity and Distributions one day. Because they do quite a lot of stuff on non-native species.
1: Yeah, I did until Wiley did that horrible editorial thing and the entire editorial stuff resigned. So, now I don't want to anymore. Oh, go into more detail, please. Um... Let me hate them with you. (laughs) Yeah, so basically Wiley instigated a, we're going pure open access with APC fees, um, like high APC fees, without any sort of discussion. APC fees? uh, Article processing charges. Cool. And they didn't really discuss it with anybody that was operating the journal, things like that. It was kind of just upon high... And then the, some of the editorial staff wrote a mm, opinion piece on, okay, what are the advantages, disadvantages of instigating this open access only policy for this journal. Um, editor, like a different editor, accepted it for publication. It all got reviewed by independent people, whatever. Um, accepted for review and stuff. Wiley came along and said no. And essentially interfered with the editorial process because it was an article critical or as they saw it too critical of what Wiley were doing. And so editor in chief and everybody involved was like, if, if you're going to come in here with your sort of money motivated schemes and basically get in the way of editorial practice, we're gone. We're not, you're relying on people to do things out of good faith in a lot of ways. Okay. Editors maybe, maybe pay stuff, but The lower down rungs certainly aren't paid and you can't really start messing around with that sort of stuff. And And you certainly can't compromise the legitimacy of editorial decisions based on, (laughs) we don't like you being critical. And was this then being critical specifically of the process in diversity and distributions? The the opinion piece? Yeah. Yeah, essentially. Wow. Oh, wow. I didn't hear about that at all. It was certainly motivated by it. Right, yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Um, I think then they published it on Bioarchive or something like that.
0: Sure, yeah. No one can get their greasy mitts on it that way.
1: Yeah, it the the almost wholesale resignation of an editorial staff, like people aren't going to do that just on a whim. And what
0: were the, <laughs> what were the? I mean, presumably they were arguing that if you have open access fees for everyone, it's going to preclude lots of authors from actually being able to publish in the journal. Is that one of yeah, their main ideas? I, I've,
1: yeah, I think so. I think it. I don't think it was just a straight argument against it. I think it was more a discussion of the advantages, disadvantages. Sure, sure, um, sure.
0: I'm just wondering what some of the uh, disadvantages were. Obviously, costs.
1: I think yeah. costs must have been a big one because I remember the actual. I, I have a feeling the APC costs were like three, three and a half thousand, something like that. Yeah,
0: they were right. not.
1: Um, it's because it's one thing opening a journal o- doing your whole open access optionally. Mm, yeah um, it's Which I think is Obviously a good thing Thing forcing it And I think that's where The issue was Was it was too Much of a step With too high of a cost Yeah yeah, because if
0: authors have the money for open access, these days lots of people like doing it for lots of reasons. But oh, 100%. you just can't, just not every single person publishing a, in a journal is going to have £3,500 left over grant money to make it open access. That's just not No, no, and
1: sometimes grant money cannot be spent on that sort of thing. That's true, yeah. Or universities have a fund for that, but depending on whether that's split up by lab, by primary researcher, by, you know, just researcher and stuff money can go different ways or get used up you know yeah And certainly some of some of these journals the prices are I mean the
0: yeah I mean the
1: fact that over the top
0: the fact that the authors have to pay to publish their work is just completely and utterly baffling and if you talk to anyone outside of science they laugh in your face when they hear that um, well it is
1: yeah and so when universities do cover that's all well and good but some universities have a larger fund than others and you know a lot of these prices aren't there are sometimes waivers for different places in the world. But at the same time, you sort of think, ah, these prices are pretty elevated. And I think yeah. that's been pretty well demonstrated by Peer pricing. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, Peer J seems to be doing things properly. Mm. A, so yeah, we'll put a link to that uh, bio-archive paper if anyone's interested to read more on this topic. But Yeah, we'll... I
1: should. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying this stuff from memory. I mean, I might be messing up some of the actual facts of the way it went down, but that's only the way I remember it.
0: Yeah. Remember, Just as a disclaimer,
1: Ben's got a pretty active imagination. <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't. Yeah, I'll, I'll track. I'll see if I can track down that bio archive. Um, yeah, sweet. that bio archive piece. I'd like to read it anyway. Um,
0: cool. So, yeah, we're on this brand new species. Um, we are in the Andes, Amazon region of Ecuador, Peru, Brazil, and Bolivia just uh, that just sounds like a great place to go and look for frogs doesn't it and there is a genus of frogs called noblella and prior to this publication it included 14 species so coming into 2019 14 species and they are small terrestrial breeding frogs so they breed on the floor and this species is being described from a place called Los Amigos biological station which is in the Madre de Dios region of Peru if you'd like to look it up and they also occurred at various sites along a nearby valley and during field surveys in a few different places these frogs were spotted chilling out on the leaf litter and they were thought to be something new so the authors took some samples and they looked at five different genes created a phylogeny and sure enough it's a brand new species.
1: And it's cute. It's unbelievably cute. It is. It
0: is. Cute is a good word. It's a little, little tidy tucker. Um, and you can tell they're small. You know how sometimes when you look at a photo of something small without any context, without a scale bar, you think, that could be big.
1: Not so yeah. with
0: this frog. This is definitely a spindly which, tiny little frog.
1: Which photo are you looking at, though?
0: So right now I'm looking at my favorite ones, which are figure 10.
1: Yep. Yep, they're pretty nice. They're little orange arms. How how, did you say how exactly how big these guys are?
0: I did not. I just said they were small.
1: So females are ten to fourteen millimeters SVL. Males are nine to eleven millimeters SVL. Such
0: tiny. They They are are really, really small. Extremely tiny. And I mean, they look—they look sort of quite generically frog-shaped, although their back legs are very, very chunky. Compared to their front yes. legs, and they have
1: quite pointy. They have got a pointy frog face.
0: Yeah, definitely a pointy frog face. Like a, and their their yeah. arms are kind of orangey or brown. Some of them are orangey, some of them are brown. And then they've got light tan coloured legs. And then the body itself it varies quite a lot, but generally there's sort of light blotches and dark blotches. They've got a sort of line from one eye to the other, which is darker, um, which is quite striking. And, yeah, all these little light sort of white or creamy flecks all over the chin, the belly, and then to more or less an extent on the thighs. So
1: overall... And they've got a perfect chevron on the back, a brown chevron. Yes. Like a go-faster stripe.
0: Yeah, yeah. But they are highly variable. Like, if you look at any of the figures, um, they seem to all look different. Um, Whether or not there's a difference between males and females...
1: I don't know if there is in colour, but there most certainly is in size, and I think what was also really cool was that there seems to be a difference, so they range quite widely in elevation, from like 200 to 450 or something like that, Um, 1,450, sorry, so it covers 1,250 metres altitude, it's quite, quite wide, and in this paper they're suggesting that there is a difference in size of these frogs depending on the elevation a sort of Bergman's rule-esque situation potentially.
0: Big up Bergman love Bergman getting a mention
1: yeah so there's definitely quite a lot of variation in this little species not just between sexes but between uh, potentially subpopulations I guess would be the appropriate term
0: Mm. yeah no it's really cool and uh, yeah I mean, it just, it, when I read that, I was like, wow, we've completely inadvertently made this so relevant to the topic of the podcast by picking the species. And I uh, <laughs> just love it when that happens.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And yeah, we're so this species is being described from Los Amigos Conservation Concession Area, which uh, I just Googled. And it just looks, I mean, it looks very Amazonian. It looks very beautiful. Um, you know, these big, wide, meandering Muddy watered rivers with lush forest either side. Um, I mean, if you're a frog, really, it'd be a dream. Heaven. And I would, I would imagine, owing to the structural heterogeneity of the vegetation, many, many niches to fill. Of which, of course, one is the terrestrial environment, which is the one this one's inhabiting. <laughs> yeah, and it does love leaf litter. It does. And, the reason I am keep saying the name of the conservation concession area is because that's what they called this species. They actually named it Noblella Los Amigos, which is fantastic. And mm. not only is that the name of the conservation concessionary, but Los Amigos, if you just translate the Spanish, means the friends, which is brilliant. It's
1: just a lovely little friendly frog. Yeah. Now, what would be hilarious is if it actually has a really mean attitude. <laughs> yeah, like savagely territorial to a point where it
0: just obliterates its... <laughs> it's yeah <laughs>
1: um,
0: but I can't imagine that's the case they look like stone cold chillers
1: yeah they look they look adorable but, just know, straight I've up adorable been wrong in the past
0: um but yeah their ecology we don't really know much about them yet
1: um they love leaf said, litter
0: yeah they like leaf litter but they're from a really wide variety of habitats which kind of suggests that they're at least somewhat generalist in their ways um not necessarily a wide variety of habitats, but a wide variety of elevations. So they've obviously got a little bit of plasticity in their behaviour.
1: Importantly, they uh, occur in several different protected areas. Which is great. So although, yes, these sort of areas are threatened with habitat lessened things, the, where they are in the protected areas and potentially their distribution uh, the authors are suggesting least concern as a initial red list status for them, which is nice. Yeah, we've got enough got to new be concerned species, about it's uh, isn't of immediate conservation concern, which is yeah really nice. Yeah. And they're miniature. Miniature. Super mm-hmm. miniature. So yeah, Google it.
0: Noble Los Amigos and you'll see what we're talking about. A cute little frog from Peru. Hmm. Happy days. Awesome. Um, cool, I think that rounds up our episode on vertical stratification <laughs> as a topic um,
1: Yes, managed to just squeeze it in Yeah, have you got any other business this week? Um. No, what are we doing over Christmas period? Are we doing one over the Christmas period? Are we having a small break we should warn people about?
0: <laughs> well last year we planned to do a Christmas special and it came out in mid-January So I think... For anyone to expect anything other than that as a result is optimistic at best. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, we'll be in the same country. Well, no, we won't. But We'll be in the same time zone for a time, which will make life marginally easier.
1: Yes. So maybe we can do one early January and and so we have a slight Christmas break because there's going to be travel and family stuff. And then we'll, we'll try and get people a Christmas related episode. In the yeah, new maybe, year? Oh, yeah, it seems we'll, pretty pretty lackluster.
0: Well, yeah, we'll see. I mean, there's only 2 weeks till the new year. So, Yeah. Yeah, we'll give it our best shot.
1: We'll we'll try and get something early early January. Yeah, but regardless, yeah. enjoy the festive period. Yes. Everyone. En- enjoy it and enjoy the fact that frogs use vertical stratification to minimize niche overlap.
0: Yeah. And uh, use the Christmas holidays as an opportunity to play our podcast to your whole family. <laughs> no one deserves that for Christmas. <laughs> Parti- I think they all deserve it. Um, that's what you should do. And all right. I haven't got any other business whatsoever. I think I expended all my other business because we recorded the other one quite recently.
1: Yeah, that's the other thing. Is That's that's worth mentioning, actually, that this is recorded quite swiftly over the after the previous episode. So if... If you're listening to this and thinking, why did they ignore my stuff about salamanders? We probably haven't. It's just probably we're recording this before we received it. Yeah, that confused yeah? me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> perfect. Just- what, are what are you talking about? <laughs> um, yeah, so
0: I think all that remains to be said is if you want to get in touch with us, you can. HerpHighlights at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at HerpHighlights. Um, if you want to buy any merchandise... It's probably just about time before Christmas, maybe. Uh, try. You've got a Redbubble store. If you search Redbubble herpetological highlights, you'll find it all Ben's awesome art on T-shirts and uh, there's a toad mug, which is very popular. <laughs> hey, man, it's popular with me. I love it. I think it's great. That wasn't meant to come across sarcastic. I just sound like a. I just It's my default go-to by accident sometimes. So,
1: okay. um, yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening awesome thank you for listening everyone 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 (laughs) wherever you are whoever you are thank you
0: Do you want to hear first? Yeah,
1: frogs, 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 frogs,
0: frogs, 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 frogs.
1: I think that's enough frogs that's for now. That's
0: good. Well done. I think that, hopefully that will make life easier for us.